After the break, we come back to fundamentals of the Vedanta. And during the break, the question was asked about further elucidation on the principle of viveka, or discrimination. We described it generally as just being nicha nicha vastu viveka, discrimination between the real and the unreal, but further clarification was wanted on that, and understandably so. So in Vedanta, you have these two methods of discrimination, which is good to bring up in conjunction with these four treasures that we put on the board, Viveka Vairagya, Shatsampati, the six jewels, and Mumukshutvam, the desire for liberation. We'll talk a little bit more about desire for liberation after we go back to Viveka and talk about these two methods, which Vedanta teachers say allow one to arrive at truth. And they're Adyaropa and Apavada. Those can be placed on the board too. Adyaropa is very interesting. To me, it's always been at once a kind of method, but also just a kind of point of fact. That is, there has been a false superimposition here. That's the way the Vedanta teachers put it. That is, you're seeing what was really a rope as a snake, and you're recoiling in fear. That's the classic explanation in Vedanta. That is, this world is the rope that you've been seeing as the snake, as it were. That is, a false superimposition, something which is really Brahman, is appearing to you as a world in time and space with cause and effect and undergoing this transformations of birth, death, decay, and all that. But actually, it's nothing more or less than the eternal Brahman. So non-eternal things, things that are ornaments or appearances, even illusions, are there in the mind being projected over this, like pictures on a screen. The world and all the experiences that go on are the pictures. The screen is Brahman supporting them. Brahman underlies everything in that sense. So false superimposition called vivarta, put that word up there too, vivarta, has to go along with the idea of adyaropa. But I said adyaropa is also a method. Let me quote actually from Swami Nikilananda here. Adyaropa denotes the illusory superimposition caused by ignorance on account of which the properties of one thing is attributed to another thing. Examples are a rope mistaken for a snake, a tree stump mistaken for a man, a mirage that contains water or no water, and shells that seem to be made of silver. One thing is superimposed on another. In the same way but reversed, the characteristics of the self are superimposed on the non-self. In this way, consciousness, intelligence, bliss, and other characteristics which really belong to the self are falsely attributed to the non-self or the world, comprising the body, the senses, the mind, all of which by nature are unconscious and inert. So that's an important fact, too, that without Atman or the true self or pure consciousness here, all of this would be non-existent. Therefore, you could also see the efficacy of Sri Krishna's advice to Arjuna in the Gita, go fight, kill them all, that is, the opposing army, because they're never really living in the first place. They're all dead. They're just bodies. And they rise and fall like waves on an ocean. But foam, spray, waves, droplets are all nothing but water. Things come into existence and leave existence. That's all the march of apparency, as it were. But the reality is that nothing ever 
changes. Everything is consisting of this eternal Brahman. So the false superimposition, which Vedanta talks about, Vivarta, has to be seen through. Why does it arise? Don't ask why. Ask who. If you ask why, you're immediately plunged into the world of cause and effect. If you ask where, you're plunged into the world of location. If you ask when, you're in time. So you must ask who, who, be like the owl. Who am I? Because if you know yourself, you know that the whole thing got projected by none other than this who. And you'll put it all to rest. You'll have effective means for rising up out of it and being your true self. Then you can go on in the world, in the body, in the mind, and see it all as lila, divine expression or play, instead of maya, illusion, fraught with suffering. So there you have Sri Ramakrishna's great statement. The world is seen by some as a framework of illusion, and by others it's seen as a great play, a mart of joy, he called it. A mart of joy is always going on. So how is that that the world can be seen in one way by one person, and the same world can be seen completely different by another? It's all by power of one's own consciousness or lack thereof, awakening or non-awakening of consciousness. That's the way Lord Buddha put it. All have Buddha nature in them. Some are awake to it. Some are asleep to it. And in this day and age, it's pretty obvious that most are asleep to it and very few are awake to it. And, of course, it can be said, maybe provisionally, that there are others that are awakening to it. That has to be provided for, too. It's just like waking up from sleep and momentarily forgetting where you are. You've had that experience, maybe. Who am I? What am I? Where am I? And you grasp about for some sort of foundation to latch onto, like in a teenager. They'll go to sleep and it'll take them a long time to wake up. Even some adults need their coffee or others might need some sort of stimulant to get them through the day. So consciousness being pure and perfect and the most authentic stimulant, really, if you want to put it in that way, needs to be awakened to. Then you'll feel yourself. You'll feel true and real and authentic Vivarta, false superimposition, will be seen through. You won't mistake a rope for a snake anymore and suffer all the consequences of such a misapprehension. So seeing things as they truly are. Back to Nikilananda's description here. Thus Brahman appears to the ignorant as the universe of names and forms and the individualized soul then, of course, to the luminary, they'd see this world itself and all things in it as nothing less than Brahman. That's a little idea of Adhyaropa, but I say that Adhyaropa is also a method because this kind of thought process would not occur to a person who is ignorant or undesirous or in the know at all about anything subtler than just body or conventional life. The idea of there being a need to discriminate against something that's real or unreal. It'd be foreign to them. It's very odd, isn't it? That's where Sri Ramakrishna said a sattvic person appears like a tamasic person. That is, one of them sleeps and the other sleeps. The tamasic person is lying there in a completely slothful sleep. 
the sattvic person is also lying there with the eyes closed, but probably is thinking about Brahman with his eyes closed. His consciousness is vibrating. And if that person slips into sleep at all, it's the sleep of deep sleep or the sleep of samadhi. We call it sleep of samadhi. The insomnia of yoga, as my friend put it. So in the same way, people who consider this world as Brahman are completely ignorant. Yet other people who consider this world as Brahman are completely illumined. In other words, Sri said, when the coconut is unripe, it's all one thing. There's no differentiation between the different sections of it. But when it gets ripe, it turns into husk, shell, meat, liquid, milk, and then the pit inside, which rattles around. So when one's spiritual understanding is ripe, one realizes that the husk and the shell and the meat and the milk are all body, prana, mind, and intellect. But that what rattles around inside, which is completely separate, is the Atman. The Atman is not a material thing, while all these other things, these sheaths, are material things. That's ripe discrimination. And Vivarta, false superimposition, would have been put to death at that point. But there are other people who say, all this world is my reality. But they're not seeing it as Brahman. They haven't done the discrimination. They say, this body is God, this mind is God, this prana is God. But they're not looking at it in terms of God being the ultimate reality. They're thinking of it in terms of God being sensual experience. And that's what they're limited to. So, very thin line between understanding and non-comprehension or between enlightenment and non-enlightenment or wisdom and ignorance, they can appear to be the same thing, which is another type of false superimposition. So in terms of viveka or discrimination, adhyaropa and apavada or vivarta, false superimposition, are really the meat which you want to get at. That's what you want to discriminate and using Adhyaropa as a method first, you discern that there is something that needs to be discriminated. If you don't know that yet, then as I say, you won't even be taking steps toward that end. So there's something that happens inside of the human consciousness. Swami Prabhavananda down in L.A., in the last generation of Swami, said, used a biblical reference. He said, the hound of heaven will come after you. There's no way to get away from your true self. The hound of heaven will seek you out. So if you try and run from your true self, something will happen by some even maybe mystical means, maybe even subversive means <laughs> to bring you towards remembrance, towards wakefulness. Like the child says to its mother, when I feel the call of nature, will you wake me up? And the mother says, don't worry, when that happens, you'll wake up. And if you don't, you sleep in a soiled bed. So. Unfortunately, there are many people who are sleeping in soiled beds in this life. They refuse to wake up to their true nature and they'll suffer accordingly. So to put an end to suffering, and this is why Lord Buddha came up with the Four Noble Truths as a way of explaining. There is suffering. Suffering has an origin. There's a way out of suffering and so forth. It's a good way of explaining that need. And it's very much related to... He was very much aware of the Vedanta, at the time, Vedanta had been misused by the Brahmin priests, so he had to come up with a different way of explaining based on the needs of the day again. 
come up with a philosophy that was applicable to those beings. It was just the avatar coming again. There are some people who think there's one avatar that comes once. There are some people who think there are many avatars that come many times. But the truth is there's just one avatar that he comes many times. And if you steep yourself in non-dual awareness, you too will realize that all beings are cut from the cloth of Brahman. In that way, your discrimination is complete and adhyarupa will occur. You'll be very much compelled to do this discriminatory process. What's real, what's unreal? And it'll be happening as a mental yoga. What in my mind is causing me to see that is necessary when it's really proven again and again to be very unnecessary and maybe even harmful to me. So how am I going to rid myself of it? So you'll do a mental analysis based on the idea of false superimposition. It's a misreading of reality that I've been doing again and again, probably for lifetimes. And I have to put it to death. And when I do put it to death, I'll have inner peace, self-control, and all these other things which lead up to desire for freedom. I was thinking that in this pathway, the ability to practice Adhyarupa as a method or, or to even have it operating in the mind, wouldn't you say it goes hand in hand with learning about the cosmic principles as insentient? Annapurna is saying that if you knew what the Samkhya scientists knew, that there were 24 cosmic principles in this world, they looked out and they did their discrimination. First, let's, let's categorize what's non-real here, what's changing, what's ephemeral. We can't really give it up until we know what it is. So they've said it's the five senses, it's five elements, it's the organs of action and the organs of knowledge and the fourfold mind, ego, intelligence, mind, and mind's thoughts. These are 24 things which we can then put in a nice category and call that the changing world. And it covers everything. I mean, actually, you could really say mind and it would cover everything <laughs> because the mind sprouted eyes in order to see air, earth, fire, and water. It externalized ideas so that these ideas can be comprehended and enjoyed in an individualized state, which is really Again, the Leela or divine play, as long as we see it as such, but is definitely very much an illusion fraught with suffering if we don't know ourself. See, so dualistic religion has been proposing some external creator, but I've always said we have to do away with the idea if there's ever a creator. This universe is not created. It appears like waves on the breast of the ocean of Brahman. There's no creation in it. And there's no destruction for it. It's all based on the world of ideas or thought. In that way, you could say there is an origination in the form of a thought. But that thought is eternal. It is the actual mind of God. Like Swamiji said, you can destroy the cup, but you can't destroy the thought, clay cup. That will keep coming up. And as long as the thought there, there's going to be potential for the actual object to be created from the thought eventually. Thus, the whole myth of evolution goes on, and all the worlds perpetuate themselves. Not only these physical worlds, but worlds of angelic beings, and astral beings, and causal beings, where saints and sages keep their subtle bodies so they can work with this physical realm, beings in this physical realm. So, think of it all as projection. Shristi stiti lai, projection. Creation, preservation, and destruction. It's put forth, it sustains itself, and then it draws itself back in. It's all movement of thought, but it's apparent. 
you're reading a book, soul is reading the book of nature. And when it's done, it just puts the book aside. But nothing ever happened except internally. The experiences were all had inside. They weren't had outside. Swami Vivekananda uses that. And when you're done with the book of nature, you'll just put it aside and you'll be yourself, as you always were. You were that before you picked up the book. You're that after you read the book. So that eternal being remains the same. Everything else changes. In fact, the poet Shelley puts that very nicely when he says, The many change and pass. The one remains the same. Life is a many-colored dome which stains the pure white light of reality or something like that. Even Western savants who had read the Vedanta and some of these religions put it in terms of poetry in the sense that there was a one and changing thing and then the many change and pass. And life is a many-colored dome. So the light of pure consciousness filters down through body-mind mechanism and becomes elements and worlds and so forth. This is all what Anapurna just brought up, the secret of creation, how everything gets projected. In the beginning was the word which is Christ's mention of just the tip of the iceberg. You could say in that regard that Ajaropa or Vivarta, false superimposition, is a way of recognizing that there has been a projection here. You don't have to say, it's an illusion, I now have to give it up, in such a sense. You could just say, ah, I see Mahamaya's working here. She's projected this whole world of names and forms, but my business is not to become attached to them or to consider them real or lasting. My business is to detach from them, consider them unreal and ephemeral, and remain with the unchanging. That's but my position. You're using some of the tools that are imposed, so to speak. I mean, your ears, your, your ability to speak, they're not real. However, those are the only tools I know to, to uh, try to understand all of this. You might as well go right back to the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mind itself is unreal. That's why you blow it out in meditation. That's why you get rid of its samskaras or its karmas. That is, it's come with baggage and you want to be free. So you have to find out how to slough off that skin of illusion. Leave the baggage of old concepts behind and always remain fresh and at the cusp, right on the edge of Mother's Wisdom Sword. So as it cuts through the maya, you're always aware of the truth. You don't fall into Maya. I mean, we studied the 16 evolutes of Maya, and we'll go through that again probably this year at one of my visits. And we'll put that on tape too because that's very important. All these ways in which Maya deludes us so that we can watch out for those that when they happen. Like the Ashanatrayam, wife, children, and wealth. It's a very bitter teaching for people who are raising children but understand rightly you just have to to see that the child was never born and it never dies for one thing and that it's nothing but the Atman its body-mind mechanism is just a projection by its own sankalpas it's taken birth by its own desires and it'll give up that body when it's through with the experiences and in a well-regulated life of course this will all be done in harmony with truth in a life where the mind is uninformed, attended by much suffering, much hardship. That's a generality, of course. And many illumined beings had great hardship. But they didn't really see it as hardship. They bore it as if it were nothing.
Holy Mother, if you read her life, she lived very straitened circumstances. But she herself says, ever since I met Sri Ramakrishna, I had a pitcher of bliss placed in my heart. She was in bliss all the time. She was very content. She had all these qualities we've been talking about. Back to your assertion. The senses and the mind are tools. You put it rightly. They're tools with which to explore this experience of life. But the explorer, he never gets attached to one place. He always goes on. Lord Buddha said that too. He said, the illumined beings are like swans flying to the mountain lakes. They go to one mountain lake and they sit there for a while, but they're not satisfied. They always have to go to the next more pristine and more pure mountain lake. And they keep going on and on like that. In other words, you wouldn't really want to stay in this one body using these same senses with the same ordinary mind, would you? Time, death, karma, make sure of this. And you yourself have been the one that set that up. I meet a lot of people who are blaming God for their predicament. Somehow it has to be communicated to them that you are the God that you're blaming. Swami Vivekananda put it in one of my favorite ways. There is no God. There is no devil. There's only the great self. I mean, that's pure non-duality. This great self, you could call it God. Again, you want to seek the unchanging and be free of falling into the illusion of separation or the illusion of becoming. There's being and there's becoming. Ensconce yourself in pure being and then watch the play go by. Grab the pole and swing around like the kids, but don't let go. If you let go, then it's a skin knee and the suffering and the nurse and band-aids and shots. All you had to do is remain with a firm grasp on the pole of truth, which is non-duality. Duality is perversion, the Abhidhuta Gita says. Duality is perversion, seeing many. But seeing one, that's non-duality, that's truth. So you must always find a way of seeing that one essential truth or that one being working through all mediums. So they can be set as tools. They are tools. They're tools when you're a worker. They're modes of expression when you're a consummate artist. So spirituality is the same. Become a spiritual artiste called a luminary or an enlightened being. You'll make the modes of nature all obey you and you'll bring the senses and mind under your control and that will be to your greatest delight. This poisonous universe will disappear for you. Nostrabakar Samhita says that. How to make the poisonous universe disappear. Let's talk a little bit about apavada, the second means by which discrimination is fortified within the aspiring seeker. Adhiropa then, as a mechanism, allows you to see that there's something wrong with the picture. There's been a false superimposition somewhere along the way. I got off track and I didn't see what happened in that very subtle, slick moment where I started looking at things in a different way. And so Adhiropa is a means by which you have a foreboding of the mind, as it were. But then Apavada is that which helps you get rid of the false superimposition once you've seen that it exists. So once you see that Vivarta has happened, that this has all been a projection, then you 
effectively put that projection in its right place. To quote back to Swami Nikilananda, Apavada is a process of negation through discrimination to discover the true nature of a thing. For instance, by negating the illusory water in a mirage, one discovers the true nature of the desert. In like manner, by negating the attributes of the non-self, one discovers the true nature of the self. And by negating the attributes of the relative world, one discovers the true nature of Brahman. It is important to remember that attributes that are superimposed upon a thing do not really belong to it, i.e., the water in a mirage cannot really soak a single grain of sand in the desert, nor can a snake impart its poison or its terror to a rope. In the same way, the pairs of opposites like hunger, thirst, life, and death, etc., cannot change the true nature of the self, which is Satchitananda. So, seeing through a glass darkly, I've looked at this universe and attributed all these things to it. Its power over me thus holds sway. Now I must reverse the process, and Apavada allows you to do that. There's been a false superimposition. I see what it is. I see that it's based on a false reading of reality, and now I turn back within. I quit superimposing the attributes or dualities or opposites as a power not under my control or something alien to me, and I see that it's all been done by me, and it can be undone by me. Two things, karma and reincarnation, are very important to accept. The definition of ignorance in Buddhism is non-acceptance of karma and reincarnation. That's how they describe ignorance. But number two, that karma and reincarnation are relative truths, not absolute truths, that they're apparent happenings, and that there is this uh, Buddha nature or this Atman beyond apparent change and superimposition of attributes externally on everything, and that is what you want to seek and see. Holy Mother said that. Quit seeking God. See God. So it's a matter of here, right here, right now, beholding that non-dual Brahman, making the appearance of things recede and the real essence come forward. It's like on a computer. You want a file that's in back, you push a few keys, and that file that you want comes in front and the other files go back. So what you want to see, make it come forward. By that, you have the process of Adhiropa and Apavada. So that's a little bit more defined levels of discrimination for the sincere seeker. You could take examples, but you find plenty of them in life as you embark on the path. And you'll find really that a lot of these practices are not alien to you, but you use them in everyday life. But if you start using them at deeper levels of your existence in spiritual life, then you'll get definitive insights, more profound insights that tide you over and fulfill you. Then you'll feel inner content and inner peace and self-control at all times, which is what Krishna is proposing in the Gita. The Purna Yoga system or synthesis of all yogas is really stiti pragnasya, steady wisdom, where you become unruffled or impervious to anything that happens to you and you remain in a state of steady wisdom all the time. Under duress or extreme pleasure, whatever the case may be, that's why the life of the sannyasana is very powerful. That Swamiji walked from place to place in India before he came to the West, and he said he'd go days and days without eating and walking and wandering, and then 
because of something he said to someone, some discussion he had, he'd be invited to the palace of a raja and he'd be eating sumptuous feasts on gold plates back and forth as if feasting and fasting were the same thing. And his mind became titiksha, forbearance. He became just absolutely of one mind in all situations. Forbearance happens with things externally like heat and cold and so forth, but it also happens internally with things like anxiety and stress and bliss and pleasure. Those all are relegated to a condition that is impervious. They're unable to affect you. At the break also, some of us were talking about the four qualifications for this. Sadhana chatushtaya. The term came up. Sadhana chatushtaya. And that's what we just went through here. Vivaka, vairagya, shasunpati, and vimukshutam. That is sadhana chatushtaya, or what we've been calling the four treasures and six jewels. But in the way that I bring it up now, we can look at the same thing in terms of qualification, that the ancient rishis taught their students this only when they were ready to hear it, when they were equipped to hear it. Nowadays, the standards for hearing it aren't so high and so strict. Anyone can hear it. But actually, the criterion for coming to hear it is the same, I think, and that is sincerity and and a desire for freedom. As we said, some yogis or yoginis, beings that are born with a desire for truth from their very birth, maybe they've sought that before and not quite reached the end of their journey, so they take another birth. In fact, Sri Krishna mentions that in the Gita, when he says that some are born in the houses of rich or in the houses of very pious, so that they can continue the thread of their yoga to the final end. Many of us have embarked on this search in terms of time and space anyway, and have been seeking that definitive answer, which will cause the mind to go into samadhi, which will render the, the world all blissful, make it all Brahman. Oftentimes in another lifetime, we get caught up in all that goes along with existence, so that we're carrying this baggage I mentioned earlier, maybe some of it slowing us down on our journey. So again, the discrimination process is important so that we can lighten our load and get there uh, swiftly to the goal. Not a headlong rush that's full of angst necessarily, because there is, of course, the way of just knowing that destination is here now, and you just need to open your eyes to more of the scenery as it goes by and enjoy the journey. That's, of course, a more peaceful way, but some are very anxious to get back there, and they'll take extreme measures. One goal, many paths. Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti is the ancient saying. But I think really there's one path, one way, but many approaches. That's the way it's been defined lately. Because there's really only one way to get to that truth. That's what Christ meant when he said, I am the way and the light. Only one way, and that's renouncing the world in a sincere manner with all your concentration firm on one ultimate goal and means. If you can see them all as one as you're doing it, fine, but it's not always given to us. Sometimes it's not always given to the incarnation, to the avatar, to see where he's going. Mother, a force that's beyond even the avatar, keeps the veils there in place until a certain moment, then we'll open them. So you take them away from as at certain junctures in life. Sometimes I mentioned that dream my friend had where a sage came to him in his dream and told him four very important things about his life. He woke up 
he told me about that dream. But he said, funny, I can't remember what he told me. And then each time over the next year, she'd call me, she'd say, remember that dream? Well, the second thing that he told me just happened. And I remembered it as it happened. So these veils or these blinders, as it were, will be put there in front of the consciousness as if Mother has a way and means and a time for everything to happen. That helps us and adds a little bit to our patience and our perseverance as we go along. In fact, Ram Prasad has a beautiful song in that regard. He says, be confident that you will awaken to your true nature. Even though you don't know, sometimes you can't see the end, you become very confident that you will awaken. That's why sometimes you feel very sattvic and very balanced, and other times you feel doubtful and at odds with everything. They're both okay. You don't have to have any fear or any trepidation about it. Both of those are okay. You just have to move forward through it. So in terms of qualifications, you had to have these. And the fourth one was mumukshutvam, which we just started to talk about before the break. It is strong desire for liberation. Only those who feel like they really want to be free from the impositions and the limitations of this limited existence will get free. They have to feel like getting free and they have to struggle to do so. When mother sees you struggle, that's when she'll let you free. And Sri Ramakrishna used the metaphor of the chick inside of the egg. And the mother hand is outside kind of checking the egg out. And there's a little pecking inside that the chick's trying to get out. But the pecking isn't strong enough yet. So the mother hand just ignores it and just keeps her eye on it. And then the egg will actually start to move. Maybe a little crack appears on the outside. The thing really wants out. And then she'll help it from the outside. She'll start pecking on the outside of the egg and crack it. Then she'll let the thing emerge, break the rest of the shell itself, and it'll come out into its world. So that's an analogy he used for spiritual life. Struggle from the vicissitudes and the indignities of bondage will happen at a certain place for all embodied beings. They'll really want to get free, and they'll be tired. Usually it happens when one's tired of the things of this world. You're no longer driven in the same way that you were before to attain certain things. You've had the experience, or maybe you've had it and it hasn't been to your satisfaction. problem there, of course, is attachment and habit. That's probably one of the greatest problems of today. There was a time, I think, when it was just a matter of, I'm bound, I'll get free, but now there's this kind of gray area. Like Sixon called it, mundane human convention. It'll just fall into this habitual preoccupation day after day of mundane life and consider that to be the high life or the the good life. And don't seem to see much reference of that in the ancient writings in the Upanishadic or Vedantic period. There was either suffering and bondage and an intense desire to get out of it or there was just freedom and there was no gray area in between. It seems like one of the evolutes or aspects of maya in this day and age is prevarication or compromise. Compromising the truth and prevaricating. In other words, finding very good and clever ways of keeping away from the hound of heaven. Throwing him off the scent. (laughs) Hiding like an ostrich. So that intense desire for liberation, one of the main arrival points of this great system called 
sadhana chatushtaya or the four jewels, six treasures. Adhyaropa apavada exercises on the way to get rid of false superimposition and to see everything as it truly is. These are very important anyway. You can't go very far in Vedanta without coming upon the aspect of discrimination and detachment, vivaka vairagya. Those are just key to the philosophy, which makes it a very good philosophy. It could very well be the religion of the future because many people will need to implement this kind of discrimination if they're wanting to get free, when they want to get free. We'll take the final ten minutes to talk about one triputi in Vedanta. That is shruti, yukti, and anubhava. Shruti, to hear. Yukti, to reason. Anubhav, to have direct experience. That's another great teaching of Vedanta that one proceeds by. In other words, it's very much connected here to the Viveka-Vairagya duo, these four qualifications that we just discussed, in that first you have to hear something, and it has to attract you, and then you'll find that rolling it over in the mind is important. After that, you have to reason about it. So that's shruti and yukti. Nothing can really be accomplished without that. In fact, the lack of the ability to contemplate in a peaceful manner nowadays is one of the problems of our society, is that we either take things for granted or take them to be true without discriminating or reject them outright. But those three are all different and incomplete, whereas the idea of hearing something and sitting to contemplate about it, introspection, you might call it, is is very important. That's how we did the scriptures and how they all did the scriptures by taking sloka by sloka and uncovering realms of meaning in just one saying. There's so much there. In fact, that art was very much demonstrated by Sri Ramakrishna himself, who is said to have start with one truth and be able to expand on it for days, nonstop, just showing relation after relation to that one truth and showing how everything is interconnected, such to the delight of those truth lovers who were fortunate enough to be with him when he did that kind of thing. So there are so many aspects. So when you hear a truth... A teacher is very important, but watering these seeds of knowledge in your own mind, or if you want to put it in devotional terms, watering the seeds of bhakti in your heart are very important with your own energy. That's how you will reap a harvest. Otherwise, the ground lies fallow. The seed doesn't get any attention. So, shruti to hear. In fact, in India, they have music. They have a shruti box. It's just one tone. So somebody sits there and squeezes the box, and that gives the musician his basic tone, and he can improvise all around that tone. It's called a shruti box, to hear. So shruti in philosophy means go to a teacher and open up those holy books and hear these truths echo down to you through ages. The great voice of Vedanta, or the great voice of the avatars, or the great teachers, and that will remind you of what's true and what's false, or what's real and what's unreal. Then reason on it. That's not enough just to hear it. That just reminds you it's there. That'll take you to a certain level. But reason about it in your own mind, because this is something you're going to have to distill. 
into wisdom. Knowledge has to be distilled into wisdom. That's why, in fact, I can mention it here, aparavidya and paravidya were also two fundamentals of Vedanta. Paravidya, highest wisdom. Aparavidya, relative wisdom or, or secular subjects. Science, arithmetic, mathematics, all those kinds of things, arts, were considered relative wisdom or knowledge by which you could arrive at something called paravidya if you didn't already know it in the beginning. Those can be mentioned in conjunction with why we implement shruti, yukti, and anubhava. We want to hear these truths, then we want to reason about them. Then anubhava means direct experience. We want to get experience of them, and Sri Ramakrishna really started there. He was the kind of teacher that encouraged you to go right there. As if in this day and age, in some ways, it's kind of dangerous just to hear and reason. We also find that prevalent in our intellectualized, materialistic society. Tarkikabudi always complaining or, or finding fault with certain things. And then by doing that so much, you kind of develop a habit which overlooks these truths which lie behind all of the apparent imperfections. You forego the paravidya, supreme knowledge, by concentration on the aparavidya. So that's kind of a danger. So Sri Ramakrishna was putting more emphasis on direct experience. Okay, hear it, reason it about a little bit, but blast my mind, penchant for reasoning, he would say sometimes. In other words, get beyond just that level and then go to the direct experience and have it. Then you'll even know what's beyond all experience, sat-shat-kara, as a fourth level, which they don't mention much about this, but you'll know that which is the pure experience itself, not a bunch of experiences that sort of express truth, but living in the truth itself. Then you come to that position, which they don't give in the Triputi, something more esoteric. I must say that you'll also hear this in terms of shravana, manana, and nidijasanam in the Vedanta. That's the same thing, really. Shravana from the same Sanskrit root as shruti. Shravana means to hear. Manana means mind, rolling around the mind, like a wine taster would roll wine over his tongue, and then he'll be able to tell you the exact bouquet and the year and and all of the quality and all that. In the same way, with the words of the illumined beings in the scriptures, you should be able to develop a mind that can really draw out those salient propensities of the wisdom itself. So you'll hear these triputis. Triputis mean there's all sorts of threes, wisdom sets of threes in the tradition that you'll find. You can name lots of them, like guru, dharma, and sangha, or creation, preservation, and destruction. There are all sorts of sets of threes throughout the tradition that go on and on. And this is one of the more important triputis here, shruti, yukti, and anubhav. I mean, you could connect it here with discrimination and false superimposition. If there is one, then I'm going to have to hear about it. If there is one, I'm going to have to reason about it. And if there is one, I'm going to have to see through it and get the direct experience of it so that it will become my own insight, my own perception. And I can put sleep to sleep, make fear afraid of itself, and put death to death, live in my true self. So we've come to the end of our three-hour period for today, Saturday, 29th of December, at Christmas time. This is Holy Mother's birthday time, and we've just had Swami Premananda's birthday. We've had Christmas, Christ's birthday. We have Kalpataru Day. 
That is the wish-fulfilling day on the first. So many, many holy days collected all around this period. Swami Shardananda too, and even Swami Shivananda is not too far away. So a lot of great beings born at this time. And uh, Alex Hickson too, our dear founder of SRV, was his birthday's on Christmas. Anyway, we'll be celebrating some of these with the singing of the 108 names of Sharda. You're welcome to all of that this week. Tonight will just be Arati and Satsang at 7. Tomorrow morning, class 9.30 to 12.30, continuing in this vein. Tomorrow night, Arati and Satsang at 7. Then Tuesday night will be our first puja. But Monday morning meditation at 6 every morning. We're here meditating for those of you who like to come. You're all welcome. Your friends are welcome. Let's close with a chant now. Om Bhadram, Om Bhadram, Karne Bihi Srinayama Devaha, Bhadram Pasyema Akshabir Yajatraha, Stirai Rangaishtushtuvamsas Tanuvir, Vyashema Devahitam Yadayahu, Svastina Indra Vrida Shravaha, Svastina Hapusha Vishvadevaha, Svastina Starksho Arishtanemihi, Svastino Brihaspatir Dadatu, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. May we see with these eyes what is good and spiritual. May we hear with these ears what is noble and uplifting. And may we, while worshipping the Lord and Mother of the universe with healthy minds and bodies, live a life which is beneficial to ourselves and to others. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om.